So, I think I'd like to begin by explaining why we're doing this show. The idea started, and this is a couple of months ago, I think, when a woman, formerly a resident of East Haddam, contacted me. She had really been troubled by racist backlash comments racist backlash comments against Black Lives Matter on East Haddam community groups on Facebook. So let me just say, one of the ways that this show and this phenomenon, and the show is really about the racism one encounters in small Connecticut towns, one of the ways that it has manifested in an unprecedented way are these community groups. You know, so if it's Chaplin Talks or Colchester Talks, uh, you're just amazed what you see there. Anyway, she was amazed and, and very, very uh, alarmed by what she saw there. At one point, she was suspended from one of these community groups for anti-racist comments. And that's not isolated. I discovered today, for example, a Bethany, Connecticut mother, told me about a Facebook community group that took down and censored just a post announcing a Black Lives Matter event. Uh, anyway, back to this former East Haddam woman. I wondered how bad things could have gotten, so I did a little research myself. I found a guy, a comment by a guy who was leaving one of the East Haddam groups because he didn't like his Black Lives Matter sympathies. His comment was, these a-holes, he said the actual word, these a-holes don't realize how heavily armed the patriots in my awesome town are. He was talking, he was commenting to a friend. He said, including many other assets I won't divulge. That gave me a little a chill. Well, since then, two low-level zoning officials in the town of Haddam, which is not the same town as East Haddam, were denounced for posting these internet memes about Kamala Harris and others, but kind of specifically suggesting and this is sort of a meme that has shown up in a couple of other uh, Connecticut conservative posts that Kamala Harris had advanced in the world by performing acts of oral sex. And I'm sorry even to repeat something like that, but it, it's that bad, I just want to tell you. So uh, they were denounced, uh, whatever. One of them apologized, whether he actually corrected his future behavior is something that has been, has been discussed. In Burlington, a bitter battle emerged when there was, a, apparently there's a prominent rock in Burlington that people paint. And it was painted for Black Lives Matter, and then it was painted over for All Lives Matter. In Ellington, protesters uh, denouncing a racist meme shared by the first select woman confronted neighbors who adamantly defended her reputation. There was kind of a standoff in town uh, about this. We might tell you a little bit more about this as we go along. But, you know, so one of, these are mostly really small towns. And I should also say, we're, we're, like, we're not going to talk about Wallingford today. I mean, Wallingford is, I think, probably the most racist, racially and racistly messed up town in Connecticut. I mean, just just today, this morning, there were at least 10 White Lives Matter uh, signs put up all over Wallingford. But Wallingford is a town of about 45,000 people, and it's not out in the woods or anything like that. It's kind of a different phenomenon. Uh, there's something that goes on in these very small towns, and they are often kind of in somewhat remote areas of Connecticut, if you grant that there could be such a thing. I'm also going to say that we're not taking calls today, but if you did want to comment, probably the easiest way to do that in real time would be at WNPR Colin on Twitter. So that's where our show is, at WNPR Colin. So we have a whole bunch of guests for you today. We're going to begin in this segment with uh, one who's been with us before, 
uh, to talk about small towns uh, and one who I am delighted to meet. So Gary Greenberg is a psychotherapist, author of The Book of Woe, uh, and the first selectman of uh, the town of Scotland, Connecticut. Uh, Leah Rawls is the president of the Wyndham Willimantic NAACP and a social worker for Connecticut's Division of Public Defender Services. So, so Gary, first of all, welcome back. Well, thanks, Colin. It's good to be here. So, you know, for those of us who've been around for a while, Scotland has a little bit of a reputation when this topic comes up simply for having hosted is probably the wrong word, but Scotland turned out to be the place that the Ku Klux Klan uh, had uh, a rally in my professional lifetime. I should say it's not the only place in Connecticut that has had a Ku Klux Klan rally in my professional lifetime, but somehow or other that one in Scotland, a place most people couldn't even tell you the location of is the one that gets all the uh, all the publicity or, or seems to excite a certain kind of memory. So uh, I know it's a memory that you think is probably important for Scotland, the town to deal with. Tell us more about that. About which part of it? The rally well, itself? Or well, yeah, first of all, it, maybe maybe give people a little sense of the uh, of the rally. And then, in 1980, you know, a local resident uh, invited the Ku Klux Klan to his uh, farm to have, a, I guess, an induction ceremony for a new grand wizard. Um, and the 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 event um, ended up ended up starting at the town green and working its way up to his uh farm uh, where they did their thing and they burned a cross and uh, it attracted a lot of media attention from across the country and uh, became actually the source of one of the iconic photographs of a Klan rally, men in hoods standing around a burning cross. Uh, that was in 1980. And as one uh, resident said to me a few years ago because of another uh, kerfuffle here in town, which indirectly referred to that one, will we ever live this down? Uh, and the answer is, we're trying. Uh, I think that we had a Black Lives Matter rally here a few, uh, a couple months ago uh, that was, uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say healing, uh, but I would go so far as to say that went well enough to indicate that uh, the town's heart is in the right place. Well, I mean, live this down is an interesting term, right? I mean, there's an argument that you don't live something like that down. You confront it. Uh, you acknowledge it. You admit that it's part of its history, and then you ask what you can learn from it. So could you explore those two possibilities? Or maybe that's the same thing. Well, you know, it's it's tricky because we're talking about something that we're talking about something that happened in a town that at, in 1980 contained a, a, maybe a whole different set of people mm -hmm. from the town now. Uh, so what is it actually what is it that we're supposed to take stock of that something took place within our geographical boundaries? I think the fact that the people here are even willing to consider that they own that event, even to the extent that they just feel bad about it or they wish people wouldn't bring it up, to that, to the extent that they will acknowledge that they identify with the town and that event, I think that's actually, uh, as that's, that's on the way to what we're talking about. Nobody pretends that it didn't happen. Right. So let's bring Leah Rawls into this. Uh, and I don't want to get you in trouble, so I'll be the person who says this, and you can either, either agree disagree with it. But just even in I should say that I brought this up again on social media today. And just every aspect of my social media and my email kind of blew up with just people sending me all kinds of stuff. And among the things that I w was sent were a lot of pictures from Eastern Connecticut 
of people wearing Confederate flags or with really elaborate uh, Confederate flags decal, decals on their cars. This is in Danielson. This is in Brooklyn, Connecticut. There, There is something about Eastern Connecticut, Leah, that occasionally seems less like people's stereotypical idea of Connecticut and New England and more like some other part of America. <laughs> well, hello. Um, thank you for having me today. Uh, and I will tell you that, yes, there is definitely something in the water out here um, that encourages and supports that mentality, that lifestyle, that um, uh, generational racist attitude. And uh, it's very concerning. Uh, and I would like to talk about Scotland a little bit because, uh, yes, we did have that uh, rally in Scotland, um, the KKK rally. Uh, that was before I came to Willimantic. Uh, and um, I always tell everyone that, you know, my first time ever hearing about Scotland, Connecticut, I was told not to bring my black A there ever because I may not make it out. And so I always had this fear of Scotland, Connecticut, though I live right next door. Um, once the uh, we became aware of the picture on Facebook with uh, former con- um, selectman Dan Syme, his wife and uh, some friends of theirs uh, was posted on Facebook of them celebrating in front of the Confederate flag on a holiday. And uh, it, it, it caused quite a stir. And uh, I reached out to Dan. He reached out to me. We had a conversation. We then called for a meeting with everyone that was in the picture, with the officers of the NAACP. And we had an open and honest discussion about the pain that that caused causes people of color, uh, the um, reputation that it incites in their community, and um, what could we do to move beyond that, to deal with it, to acknowledge it, and to move beyond it. Um, And during that meeting, um, there there was some anger, there was some storytelling, there was some apology, there was some non-apology. Um, one of the members really felt as though, you know, she grew up with that flag and why should she have to not respect it or, or celebrate it because it offends me, you know. Um, but we, we, we still decided that we wanted to work on the education piece of it and, um, uh, and the communication. And so we bought Black History Month to Scotland, Connecticut. Uh, and uh, that event uh, took place for an entire weekend. And we had about 75 um, people in attendance on a Saturday afternoon in February. We went into the school system and we incorporated the Prudence Crandall House in the weekend of education in Scotland. And I think that that did something to help break that ice and begin the process of helping them to change 
the um, uh, persona about that community. Right. And then, and like so, Gary said, we had the Black Lives Matter rally. Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about, and I'm, I'm sure I'm hyper generalizing, but uh, I do think that one of the reasons these issues have really flared up in places like Haddam and East Haddam uh, and, and Higginham, uh, these places are a little bit further in. They are closer to Middletown and to Hartford. Uh, they are places where uh, there might be, you know, some people who would push back on either side. I, I Gary, now I'm really going to hypergeneralize, but it'll, it'll give you an, a, a chance to sort of burst my balloon. I sort of feel like one of the reasons people move to fairly remote areas like Scotland, Connecticut, is that they don't necessarily want to be bossed around by somebody else to have their speech hyper-monitored, to be super vigilant about everything that they say, to honor the latest trends in social thinking and critical theory. That's not why they're in Danielson or wherever. Uh, but, but maybe I've got that wrong. Uh, you live in Scotland. I don't. I think that uh, there's some something to what you say, although uh, I'll take any opportunity to burst your bubble, Colin. Um, okay. I would say that uh, what you're talking about is the age old tension between liberty on the one hand and fairness on the other. And if you want to hyper generalize, I think that you will find that people in Scotland are much uh, to the extent that they've thought about it and or done this on purpose are inclined toward liberty as opposed to fairness, uh, and that they experience, many of my friends here experience attempts, particularly by a government or, or an activists to impose fairness on them as an unfair abridgment of their liberty. And they would, I say, and I use that word to, uh, on purpose as opposed to freedom, um, that they would say is, is not, uh, it's not right, and that they're not going to they're not going to stand for that if that's their motive for being here i i couldn't tell you that but i think that that's probably one of the reasons why this town voted uh, pretty uh, overwhelmingly in favor of donald trump i think that's why the the we we see lots of trump signs now and i think it has to do with that reaction that you just described uh, and that leah described uh, to the confederate flag kerfuffle because i think that people uh, aren't even aware that that of that how deeply that can offend members of their or other people's or other communities um and i think that when they're when they're confronted with that um i think that it's very very problematic and i think there is a lot of times when people just react strongly don't tell me what kind of flag i can fly in my front yard it's history not heritage i mean i'm sorry it's heritage not hate uh and so on all of those are I think different expressions of the of uh, the value of, of liberty over fairness. And personally, I disagree with that. I think they need to be held in a much more even tension, but um, that's uh, not, I, I don't know how to impose that. Right. So, um, Leah, I, I, you know, as we're talking here too, I realize that there are, 
there are so many different kind of sub compartments within racism, right? Within expressions of racism. And there are yeah. people who are kind of dyed in the wool racists who are just never going to have a good thing to say uh, uh, about people of color. Uh, and they're never going to change either. And then there's sort of a group of people who might fall into the categories that we're talking about now. And I'm wondering what kind of sentiments emerged when you began entering into dialogues with them. I think there are people who feel like, oh, well, does Black Lives Matter mean that those people are going to be privileged over me somehow? Am I going to lose something? Am I going to lose ground that I personally, even though I'm white and have certain advantages, that I personally feel as though I've worked hard to gain? You know, and, and I wonder yeah. if it's a mistake to talk about the, the, the first kind of racism in the same breath as the second. Well, as you know, um, as you said, there, racism comes in many different forms and actions. And um, <laughs> uh, in terms of, uh, I apologize, I kind of lost my thought a little. <laughs> we, should, we should say that poor Leah got stuck in traffic, is now trying to Zoom from her car. So this is like really hard to do. Um, well, let me yeah, ask you. Thank you for, for repeat the question for me. I yeah, apologize. Let me turn the question around a little bit and say, yeah. you know, one one way of addressing this is uh, one way of addressing expressions of racism, some of which mm -hmm. may have com been committed somewhat thoughtlessly, is shame. So, how powerful is shame uh, as uh, as a well, as a way of coping? You know, I don't know if it's if if shame works. I mean, shame never worked for any of us, did it? I mean, if you shamed me about something, the more my walls went up. So, mm -hmm. so I, I, I don't agree with shame. What I do like is opening up conversation and allowing people to have their voice and to, to, to speak their mind and their heart and then see where we can work from there. Um, and, and what I found out here in this Northeast corner is that there are folks who are willing to have that conversation and you know, they turn into allies because of their willingness. And then I found those who are, like Gary said, they're just staunch, you know, uh, pro-white, uh, pro-privilege, and don't talk to me about anything because we're not changing. And when you run into people like that, you know what I tell my, my, my members? You can't fight ignorance. You just can't. You know, you, you do your best to put it out there in hopes that, you know, there's something humanistic that will impress upon a person uh, to think about it differently. Hey, can I but comment on, on that? Yeah. But they Colin? don't. Oh, yeah. Go, go ahead, Gary. What have you got to say? Well, I think Leia's point about your question and Leia's point about shame are really, really important in this discussion. When you tell people that they're hurting you and they weren't aware of it, and if, if they care, that's almost in, in inescapably shameful. It's, it's shame. It's, it shames people when you tell them they've done something they didn't know they did. Um, I mean, I'm a therapist in my day job. I can tell you that's what we deal with all the time. And I think it's important to, to give a couple of examples here. For instance, and, and this goes back to my sense that Leah is uniquely talented at disarming people's shame and at the same time uh, helping them see uh, what they've done. Uh, Dan Syme, who was the first selectman during the Confederate flag incident, um, came back from those meetings and I talked with him and he said, I never knew what it was like to be a black person in this country. He said wow. it in those words. 
uh, over the counter of his liquor store to me uh, because I asked. Later, and then a somewhat more complicated uh, example, I ran into a guy the day after the rally, the Black Lives Matter rally, um, who I had known for many years. And he is, um, I was, had been surprised to see him at the rally. I was really surprised to see him at the rally with a mask. Um, I don't think I've seen him with a mask before since. Um, and I asked him what he, what he made of it. And uh, this guy said to me, well, he said, I thought it was really interesting. He said, I, you know, I still think that those people would probably wouldn't have happened if they had uh, done what the police told them to do. But I could see why they get tired of being told what to do. And then he said, he stopped and he said, you know, I, I think I'm a racist. And I said, really, why do you say that? He said, because when I see a white, a, a mixed race couple, a white guy and a black girl, he said, I just have a reaction. And I, I guess I'm a racist. Now, I didn't go any farther with that discussion, you know, to say, well, do you think that's a good thing or not? I just thought, well, that's interesting. Somehow somebody got him to think about that and to own it in a relatively straightforward way. And those kinds of things happen even in these little towns where, you know, there's no non-white people in this town. There's 1,680 people here and maybe a couple. Um, and But those things happen when you talk to people uh, in the way that they were being talked to in these two events. Hey, Leah, react to that. I mean, it almost sounds like you might have made more of a difference than you realize. Leah, you still I'm there? I'm sorry, can you repeat that? Yeah, yeah I, repeat I just I wonder, I wonder if listening to Gary, you think, hey, maybe these face-to-face -face encounters make more of a difference than I even realized at the time. Oh, yeah. You know, it surprises me. Um uh, sometimes when people come back and say things such as what that gentleman said to Gary. However, I would beg to differ that uh, what really upsets him is a white woman with a black man. <laughs> oh, did I say, did I say it the other way around? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you're right, Leah. I'm sorry. I missed that. <laughs> you know, you know that, that's probably what, what gets under his skin the most. Um, but, you know, then his you know daughter has a biracial child and then he's all in love with her. So I don't know how it happens. But, you know, um, I've had plenty of people come to us and, and, and say, you know, I, I never, ever looked at it through your lens. I never thought about um, my child getting home safely. You know, I had one woman come up to me and just in tears and said, you know, I never even thought to have those kind of conversations with my uh, adult young men, son, uh, adult sons or young men, you know, um, who are just venturing out into the world on their own without without being under the protection of me. I never thought about having a conversation with them on what you need to do to get home safely. Right. She said, well, I'm sorry that you have to go through that. And that kind of I'm goes back. That kind of goes back, Leah, to the thing that you said at the beginning, too, about how you were told early on years ago, don't take your black behind yeah. to Scotland because it won't get back yeah. out. Um, and, you know, by the way, yeah. I just want to say, first of all, I want to thank these two wonderful guests, Gary Greenberg. We've done so many shows with him and we'll do more. Psychotherapist and author of The Book of Woe, the first selectman of Scotland, Connecticut. Uh, Leah Rawls, the president of the Wyndham Willimantic NAACP and a social worker for Connecticut's Division of Public Defender Services. I want to make just quick, two quick uh, points to kind of button this uh, part of the conversation up. One of the the thing that Leah described experiencing that idea, don't go to Scotland, you won't make it back out, is 
one of the leftovers um, from what used to be called sundown loss and sundown towns. And, and you know, as the huge migration of African-Americans moved north post-Civil War and into the middle part of, of the 20th century, one of the odd things was a lot of New England towns actually got whiter. Um, the more black people who came up towards New England, um, the towns, rather than getting more diverse, got whiter. And, and a lot of them had either formal or informal provisions that essentially codified what Leah was just describing. They were called sundown laws. And, you know, I mean, I, he, this guy, James Lowen, who's a sociologist who's written about this, collected stories from all over Connecticut, places like Burlington, Connecticut, where... You know, a, a man who came to play cards with his friends, a black man from Waterbury, was told, you've got to get on the road and get out of Burlington before it gets dark. Um, and that might not have been on the books anywhere, but that's the way it was. And it was one of the reasons, one of the ways that the early kinds of New England segregation was fueled by that kind of thing. I also just want to talk very quickly about the power of people meeting each other and facing each other. So I've told this story once before, but so years ago, I was talking to this, uh, this journalist who'd done some kind of work. He was a reporter down in the South. He was renting one half of a duplex from an older Southern white woman who doted on him and all brought him wonderful food and just kind of loved him and uh at one point though they were talking and he she made a very anti-semitic remark in front of him to him really and he said well mrs such and such i you know i, I don't know how to say this or any other way but i'm jewish you, you must not know that but i i am jewish and she she closed down she turned around she walked away without saying another thing uh and about two or three days later they didn't speak she didn't speak to him for days the, two or three days later, she, he's walking up to the duplex and the TV, her TV is on and she is watching the news. And I think it's the time of the Six Day War. This is how far this goes back. She's watching news reports from the Six Day War. And without looking at him, she hears his key rattling in the lock. Without looking away from the TV or looking to him, she just yells, I hope them Jews whoop them Arabs. Uh, and after that, they were on good footing again. <laughs> <laughs> they got along. Now, that's not necessarily a great story, but it's sort of about, you know, when people start talking and acknowledging each other as human beings in these little towns, whether they're in Alabama or in Connecticut, sometimes things can change. All right. We've got so much more to talk about. I got to shut up. We'll go to a break and we'll come back. So we're talking about racism in small Connecticut towns. And I, I, if I haven't said it already, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of really nice people in small Connecticut towns who aren't racists. In fact, that's how I know about how much racism there is in small Connecticut towns, because those nice people have been sending me so much stuff that I, I can't even digest it all at this point. Uh, joining us now to help out is Al Robinson, a blogger, activist, and the publisher of My Left Nutmeg. So, Al, hi, first of all. How's it going? Pretty, well, it's going okay. So um, one of the things that you've really been looking at is, and, and I've alluded to some of this earlier in the show, you know, it's one thing if, you know, I run a hardware store and you run a flower shop or something, but sometimes this stuff is coming from people who actually have positions of responsibility within municipal government. And so you heard me talk about the first select woman uh, of Ellington. Uh, we'll probably also talk again about the two zoning officials uh, in Haddam. You've been covering some other stuff, the 
the Westbrook fire chief, and maybe you want to talk about that. Or and there's a, a board of education person, I believe, in Groton. Um, and and so these are kind of special things, right? These are these. It, this moves into a different area. It's like how how did you get in the job that you're in if you have these attitudes? Is there any way that you can generalize about that or talk a little bit about that phenomenon? Well, uh, let me let me go back a little bit. Okay, you know we, we've always known that there has been zoning commissions, uh, planning and zoning commissions in the state that have you know redlined their district, redlined their areas, or, or said no to affordable housing. And we we know there's been public officials in education that had problems with minorities. You know, I mean Connecticut is one of the state it's one of the states has probably the largest achievement gap in the country still. Uh, 30 years at the Chef versus O'Neill. So we know that racism has always played some type of role when it comes to government. And now because of social media, now we can see firsthand, you know, government officials out in the open with their viewpoint. And, you know, people are taking a stance and saying, hey, we, we, we can't have individuals like this making decisions upon our government whether it is, you know, housing laws or educational laws or, or fire or, or police. We're, like we had a police commissioner in Stonington who put out racist postings, and he's the same person who oversees instances of excessive use of force with, with, within the police department, and he signs off on whether or not it's true or not. Right, and we, we should say not just in his case, Rick, but really xenophobic uh, postings and homophobic postings. Uh, I mean, he, he kind of covered the waterfront with objectionable stuff. Yeah, he covered everything. He, he covered all the bases, <laughs> you know. Um, and, and it's just, you know, as a person of color, it's, it's very depressing, you know, because, uh, like, for instance, in Danbury, we, we had a teacher who put up a slew of highly offensive, probably some of the most racist postings I've ever seen. I've seen a lot in my time. And he was a high school phys ed teacher. And my daughter is going to be a freshman at this high school. If nothing was said, if this, if this wasn't exposed, this person probably would have been my daughter's high school gym teacher. You know, uh, I mean, it, it, it's personal for me. And it's been personal for a lot of people in this area who's been crying about this for a long time. And, and now in wake of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, people are standing up and they're not tolerating this anymore and they're calling for these people who are making these offensive comments on social media to resign from their post. And I, and I think it's the right thing to do. Uh, just to give people a sense, Danbury isn't really a small town, because it, so it doesn't really quite fit our theme, but we're not going to shoehorn things in too much here. This is a little bit, uh, a, a little clip of kind of what that sounded like coming from that phys ed teacher. Something happened in my hometown, small town, 100K, and uh, went down last week. So I got to show you some people are talking bad about my name. My name was in the paper today. I got to I gotta call you out. First of all, this is going to be a teachable lesson. Yo, Leslie, you fraud. I don't know who the you think you are. Ha. Ah, I don't know who you are. I don't know who you think you are. You ain't You think you're going to disrespect my name because I was speaking the truth? Shame on you. You guys can't call people racist because they're right. Because you disagree with somebody's opinion, you can't just dub them racist. I don't care what I said. Build the wall? F meant it. Do you know about 
MS-13, wake up, hit the research. The Q stuff is real. I am not retreating. Do you get it? I am not retreating. I was right. You were wrong. You will admit fault or you will pay. You know, that you will pay thing at the end, Al, I'm seeing, I feel like I'm seeing more of this kind of at least out in the open. Uh, you know, there's that whole, uh, I, I found this thing from one of the people in the kind of East Haddam argument who was talking about, you know, if you guys only knew, if they only knew how well armed we are, uh, there's a pretty bitter back and forth going on in Chaplin uh, where a woman said, I'm cleaning my Glock. Um, you know, that that somehow or other, it's not just enough to disagree, but there's increasingly when the with the people who are pushing uh, back against Black Lives Matter or maybe the ascendancy of Kamala Harris, it, it doesn't take too long before they get into that area where they're making a veiled or unveiled threat. No, and again, I, I, I would say this, this 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 comes from the top. Um, this comes from the president. You know, he has. This is the person, the president, who said that. There are great people on both sides, you know, about the people in Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I've been I've been doing this for a very long time, as you know. And and I recall a time in Danbury, probably about, uh, about probably about a decade ago when we had an incident where a where a member of the city council made a defensive remark in a series of emails and it was quickly taken care of. It, it, it was a rare instance and it was just handled now. It's like I'm getting every other day somebody sending me information about another public official saying something not not in the private Facebook on their own personal page, but out in the open in public forums. And the, 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 the teacher in Danbury that you just heard this video clip from, he made that rambling rant after the News Times article came out where he apologized in the News Times article. So after the article came out, he went on to another rant. And basically just, you know, everything I just said in my apology is just a lie. And again, this person was going to be a high school phys ed teacher in the largest high school in the state of Connecticut in the seventh largest city in the state of Connecticut. Um, that's dangerous. And there's a, and I'm, I'm, I hope I'm wrong, but I'm quite certain there's a lot of teachers and a lot of public officials who share those feelings. And these individuals who are making decisions upon our lives, whether it is planning and zoning, education, police, or fire. And I think that's dangerous. And I think we, as a community, should stop that out and say, hey, we, we should not tolerate that type of stuff in this state. I mean, Connecticut is the bluest of bluest states. Every single member of our congressional delegation are Democrats. Uh, the governor, the, the office of the governor has been held by a Democrat for the last 10 years. And Lord knows, I don't can't even recall the last time the Republicans in the General Assembly held a majority position. And we're seeing instances of just blind, pure hatred, which is just as bad as in the deepest of the deepest of the South. And I think that we as a community need to recognize this and root it out because it's just not acceptable and it shouldn't be acceptable. And it, but it is interesting. I do think that these community boards or community Facebook groups, you know, it's they always have names like Southington Talks or 
<laughs> or Colchester, right. you know, alumni group or something like that. These places, they seem to be a place. I think if you live in a small town, you know, you, you really don't necessarily want to go nose to nose with somebody out in public because it's somebody you probably see every day. It's hard to get away from somebody in Colchester, you know, but somehow or other in this kind of disembodied Internet environment, people feel very, very comfortable airing not only their prejudices, but their aggressions. And, and there are people there willing to push back against them. And it just seems to churn this kind of ugliness that, I don't know, Al, did it always exist and now it just has a, a garden to grow in? Well, you know, the best way I can describe it, and this, again, is my deep frustration. 30 years ago, the Rodney King tape came out. 30 years ago. And 30 years ago, I can remember saying, see, we told you <laughs> this mm -hmm. is actually happening. And 30 years later, we're still doing this. It's like, yeah, this is happening. It's always been happening. You know, and, and, and yes, it's, it's out in the open a lot more now because of social media, which is a whole nother discussion that we can have on the um, problems with social media. But also it comes from the person at top, at the mm. top. You know, I don't remember this, this level of vitriol as high when George Bush was in office or when George Bush Sr. was in office or when Clinton was in office. Or, or, it, it, it's just such at a fever pitch because the person at the top, the president of the United States, is giving a green light to this. And with social media, people don't think before they hit the send button. And it has consequences. And these little town forms, yeah, you're, you're right. These, these forms are just, are, are just poisonous. But we're talking about adults here. We're not talking about kids. Mm -hmm. We're talking about grown people who should know better. You know, if you're not going to go out into the public and just get on a mic and say this vitriol, you shouldn't be doing it on social media. Oh, actually, in fact, I appreciate that they're saying this stuff because now I know who you really are. I don't want you anywhere making decisions with my taxpayer dollars. It, it does. It does flush people out, whether they are aware that they're doing it or not. All right. We have to move on to our final segment here. But uh, great to talk to Al Robinson, uh, the uh, activist, journalist uh, and the publisher of My Left Nutmeg. Thanks, Al. Have a good day if you can in these situations. Uh, and we will take a little break and we will come back and we'll, we'll, we will talk about East Haddam. I don't know what it is about East Haddam, but but there's something about East Haddam. All right, I got to say my thank yous. I'm happy to say my thank yous right now. Cat Pastor's in the studio. She makes it possible uh, for us to do uh, this show remotely. I'm at my house. Uh, and Betsy Kaplan, the senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show, is the producer of this episode. And this episode was not 
an easy thing to assemble. It's a hard, slippery substance to pin down the existence of racist, especially in small, pretty bucolic Connecticut towns. So thanks for her very sensitive work on uh, this topic as well. Tomorrow we'll we'll be back with The Nose. Uh, Film critic David Edelstein will be making an appearance on The Nose along with Rebecca Castellani. We're seeing the new Charlie Kaufman uh, movie, which is up on Netflix. Um, And, well, that's all I'll say for now. (laughs) I think this will be an interesting conversation. We'll be talking about other stuff as well. So uh, back to this. So, yeah, you know, um, when you see East, I don't know what it is about East Haddam, but this whole story started with somebody from East Haddam, somebody who had lived in East Haddam, being shocked by what she was seeing on the Internet from other East Haddamites, uh, contacting me and saying, we should do a show about this. And, you know, I think most people's view of East Haddam, you can't do a Connecticut tourism video without a helicopter shot of that bridge, that good speed bridge that crosses the Connecticut River. you got the good speed opera house down below, you know, and, and is just one of the prettiest and most inviting spots in the world, which is why it's been kind of shocking to me how much, I mean, the more I looked at this, just East, East Haddam, and for that matter, Haddam, which is different, uh, just kept coming back as uh, as cases in point. Draw, no, joining us now is Drew John Ladd, the author of Wolfsong Beloved, uh, a blogger and activist, uh, and in, res- in fact, a resident of East Haddam. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. So, you are African-American and living in East Haddam. I, I mean, this is sort of a stupid and yeah. open-ended question, but what's that like? I mean, uh, are you made generally to feel welcome? Are there just occasional uncomfortable incidents or how, how do things go? It's a very strange mixed bag. Um, <laughs> so my first uh, chunk of time, and I've been here for almost two years. My first chunk of time, um, I joined up and started volunteering at a, queer horse rescue farm so i'd experience any racism (laughs) it was none Um, and i kept to myself and i don't think a whole lot of people knew that i was here um and then after the death of george floyd um there was a black lives matter protest happening in town and it didn't include me and i was incensed because there's like 40 of us in town (laughs) like how can you have a meeting about me without me and Mm. i live on the main street and i do like like blogs about like I, I do whole bunches of blogs and things about this. So it seemed kind of strange that my town wasn't aware of me, given that the meeting was happening a quarter mile away. So I went there and they gave me 10 minutes. And I think I spoke for 20, <laughs> 25 or something. Um, the, the racism here is uh, it, it's a special kind, at least in the South, you get it like right in your face. And you know exactly who to avoid, what families to avoid, what places here. It comes in the form of, well, usually disbelief, honestly. Um, yeah, it's, it's folk are just surprised and shocked when it happened. And because they're always surprised and shocked because no one ever wants to confront racism because not only is it difficult, but it comes with actual costs. They just hide in these emotional places of like shock and surprise. And, I can't believe it's happening here. And racists know that they can do whatever it is that they do and people will only pantomime caring and they won't do the work of expelling these people oh it's experiencing kind of the straight up niceness of allyship and some people sort of on their way to allyship and then also experiencing some people just being straight up confrontationally racist and driving by your house with truck flags and things like that yelling at you from the car um 
parking in front of my house for 15 minutes one time, my lady. <laughs> that was terrifying. Just parked in front of my house and stared. Yeah. So you get some of the like the TV racism, but then you get like the subtle stuff as well. Right. Uh, my father grew up in my father was born in Connecticut, grew up in the deep south and then moved back to Connecticut. He used to say in the south it was get close but don't be equal. And in the north it was feel free to be equal, but don't get close. Uh, yeah. And that's that's sort of an overgeneralization. But I think I know you've been on my Facebook thread uh, today seeing this. And one thing that people say that particularly people who moved up here from the south, they say they weren't expecting to find what they found here, that it was done in a cooler, more polite kind of way. But yeah. the, the, but in some ways, that was more unsettling the way that it could disguise itself rather than declare itself. But react to that. Yeah, so it's insidious. Um, the reason I say I prefer, well, I prefer no racism, to be clear. Um, but if, that if I had to prefer a type of racism, I prefer it in the South because you can see it. Uh, it's because white folk in the North, not to be too general, um, but don't even really have a working understanding of racism. They see it as this character flaw and a thing to abandon. So everything gets kind of trapped in white emotions, right? If you call calling a white person a racist is the worst thing you could ever be called. There are worse things you could be called, but it's the worst thing you could ever be called. And so now that's sort of placed in this special area that you can't touch. So you can't call out racism because when you call out racism, all of a sudden you're calling someone racist and on and on and on from there. So it becomes impossible to have any kind of realistic engagement about racism or people even to confront their own racism when they're all just in a state of constant denial. Right. I, I also feel as though one of the iterations of this has come with Black Lives Matter that, yes, I mean, you could have weirdos show up at your house and yell Trump slogans at you or stare at your house for 20 minutes or, or whatever. But those are probably to a certain degree outliers. But suddenly, because there'll be BLM signs on lawns or anti-BLM signs on lawns or people stealing Black Lives Matter signs off of lawns and everything that goes with that. I mean, we have forced ourselves into a very important conversation, but that conversation is one that when we have it, we, we find out things about our neighbors that we maybe didn't know and aren't happy to hear. I mean, have you noticed that Black Lives Matter has sort of vastly accelerated this process? Uh, yes, and um, I'd like to, so I have a different opinion about whether or not people are aware of racist. Uh, when I gave a, a speech at the Black Lives Matter protest, one of the things I said rather explicitly uh, to the mostly white crowd was, you all know who the racists are. Some of y'all are going home to have dinner with them tonight. It's mm -hmm. not a secret. <laughs> racist behavior, at least in small towns, isn't this sort of hidden, subtle thing, even though it kind of is packaged that way. Uh, racists are just given carte blanche to behave and no one challenges them. So when a person of color like me shows up, I represent no power. I represent effectively no population. So racists can do whatever it is that they do and people will just hide themselves in being shocked. It never actually gets resolved. There's uh, along with this, there was another incident in East Haddam that involved 
um, a, a, a local who had, I think, run for office, Teresa Govert. I, I don't know if I'm saying her last name correctly, uh, but yep. she she said because of Black Lives Matter that she really want, wanted the town to think about its zoning, think about ways in which it had been exclusionary. Okay. And this touched off. I mean, there's there's a, a, a YouTube video of the zoning board meeting mm-hmm. that's being circulated. Around. It's like an hour long, but it's being circulated around as kind of a classic of people in denial about racism. Maybe you could say a little bit more about that. Yeah, so it's, uh, I first want to say, like, I love East Haddam. That's why I moved here. Mm. And, like, I, I was well aware of East Haddam's flaws before I moved here. Mm. It's nonetheless distressing. So, <laughs> it kind of falls into the the same thing I talk about, just denial, denial, denial. Um, and basically in the meeting, white people were saying like, well, maybe we should go and ask black people why they don't live here and other kinds of things where it was just parrying to other issues and saying, well, we didn't create the problem while at the same time kind of tangentially admitting there was a problem and then attacking Ms. Gilbert's character out of nowhere. Uh, <laughs> it just like, how did that even come a part of the conversation? Like adult people, um, eventually made what amounted to an argument that if the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air could move here, right. then it means that East Haddam isn't racist. Right. And like that actually took place and is available to watch on YouTube. Go check it out. You can keep your blood pressure down. Right. Yes. They, they do say if we can't be racist. We would sell a house to Will Smith. So we obviously have no right. problems here. So I, first of all, I, we're out of time. The show's over. And this is, as somebody suggested on that Facebook thread, uh, something that we probably can't talk about just for one day, but we'll need to come back to. But we do thank Drew John Ladd, author of Wilsong Beloved and uh, blogger and activist. Uh, and we are going to say goodbye for now. But yeah, you can comment some more at WNPR Colin or... I don't know. I'm pretty easy to find. I I seem to have been very easy to find all day today. So you can find me, email me, Facebook me, do whatever you need to do.